This is my comeback story. This is my comeback story. This is Trey Lewis with Good Landing Recovery, and you're listening to The Comeback. Ladies and gentlemen, we are back. It has been a few weeks since we have done more of an interview style podcast, but I am here today, very excited to be here today with my friend Matt Gardier. What's up, Matt? Hey, what's up, brother? Good to see you, man. We got a lot of history. We were just reminiscing on some of the milestones in our relationship. Found out that Matt quit smoking cigarettes at my wedding. Um, also remember going out on his bachelor party to Capitol Grill and having one of the best ribeyes I ever had. Apoive with the Cavassier sauce at Capitol Grill. I highly recommend it if you never had it. It will definitely bring some life. But you got to get it at Capitol Grill, I'm just saying. Not trying to sound bougie or whatever, but it is what it is, and they do it the best. And uh, he he has a powerful story. There was a time in his life when there probably wasn't much talk about success and ribeyes at high-end steakhouses. Um, he has a part of his story where he was shot twice in a drug deal that went that went south, um, a lot of years spent outside the boundaries of God's will, but today he is a present father, a present husband, a leader in the community, um, in his church, also um, in leadership with one of the premier airlines in the entire world, and uh, just a powerful, powerful story. A dear friend of mine, Matt, if you would just share with us a little bit what it was like coming up. Yeah, absolutely. My mother's from Jamaica. My dad's from Dominica. So growing up in Bridgeport, Connecticut, um, I never really could fit in. So I grew up in the... I was born in 1980, September 13th, 1980. And um, in the 80s and 90s... Uh, you know, crack and cocaine was just rampant up there. So with that said, I went to public school in the first grade. I can't remember too much of it. I know that I had to leave John Winthrop school because I think a fourth or a fifth grader brought a gun to school. And then my mom was just like, no, nah, we can't do this. So she did whatever she could to get me into Catholic school. The weird thing with second grade at a Catholic school in, in the 80s is I was the only black kid in the entire school. Which was weird <laughs> in, its, in itself. Uh, that's that's just how that was around that time. By third grade, there was one other black kid in the school that came in. But I had, started having weird views coming home saying weird stuff. I was called nigger a lot. And it was more of a, uh, you know, kids will be kids. Um, so my mom took me out of that school and we went to another Catholic school, St. Joseph. And I stayed there until fourth grade where I got kicked, fifth grade until I got kicked out. And then I went back to public school. And then at that point, life was rough because the public school I went to, up north was a little bit different. I mean, you have the suburbs where I lived. My mother, I lived in a single parent household. When you went to school, kids from the projects would get bussed in there. So it was, it was odd. It was much different from the private school because it was almost as if, you know, I wasn't black enough to hang with the black kids or with the white kids in my area. It was like I was too black and not white enough. So my identity was just all over the place. It wasn't it wasn't grounded into who I who I really was. It was just like I'll become 
like these people when I'm around these people. And then when I'm around these people, I'll become like these people. So my identity was just a complete lie. With that, I was just terrible in school. I was an A student if I applied myself. But then I, more and more, I just did not apply myself and I just wanted to do bad stuff. That's, that's pretty much how my middle, middle school went. By in fifth grade, I started smoking weed. High school, my mother kind of just put me in a, um, uh, a boarding school, like a high-end boarding school in Connecticut. There I smoked a lot of weed and I got kicked out of that school. At that point, I, I got kicked out, stayed back, and I went to another, another school Marvelwood. So the boarding school was Kent. The um, the second one was Marvelwood. I stayed there for about two months, and I got thrown out of there for not for not snitching on a kid that stole some credit cards. The problem was with this was a lot of the kids, like the minorities that went there, they pretty much went like on a basketball scholarship or a football scholarship. A few kids, they stole some credit cards. I saw it. They ordered some stuff from this catalog called East Bay, and um, they got caught. They all snitched on each other. I didn't say anything. They ended up being able to stay. I had to, I got kicked out. So I went from there, and I went to Central High School, and then I pretty much finished up my years of high school back in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Uh, I never, never graduated high school. I just um, got my GED. When I was 18, I got kicked out, kicked out of the house. So I had to figure out what to do. I went to Job Corps in Maine. I left in about five months, came back to Bridgeport, Connecticut, about 20 years old. Yeah, and then from there, just pretty much just went through life just smoking and drinking, um, doing coke. and. Can I stop for a second? Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, I want to just drill in on, yeah. you know, coming up and being in some of the situations that you were in, target of racism, you know, finding yourself in all of these, I would say, really unusual situations. You know, your mom's best effort to keep you safe. When you look back on your childhood, are you thinking, I wouldn't change a thing? Are you glad for those? I mean, obviously not being a target of racism, but just her attempt to keep you safe. Do you feel like it was helpful? Did it hurt you? One thing with my mom was, so my parents got, this great question, my parents got divorced before I was born. Okay, I saw my dad every other weekend. My mom did her best to try to keep me out of out of trouble. I wouldn't change anything. She worked v- real hard. I think I was exposed to a lot of a lot of things that kind of shaped who I am right now. I also wouldn't say that it was necessarily racism. I think that these kids were just ignorant, completely ignorant. Yeah. And you know, I was the only black kid in the school, so they they're just repeating what they heard at home or you know what they know of. Like, were they black. cool with you otherwise? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Until we get into an argument, yeah, or something like that. You know, and it went back to that. I never really understood what that was back then. Yeah, you know, I just oh, these kids are racist. I didn't know what what it was. Sure, you know. And then my mother, being from the islands, you know, and, and coming here, she didn't. You know, we just didn't, we just know this wasn't good. So she's like, all right, you need to go to a different school right. type of deal. I mean, do you feel like you're an angry person? I mean, I, I see you now and you're you're a strong person, but I don't see, you know, this disproportionate, you know, amount of responses to you know, to to life. I mean, you're solid and you know, I mean, is, is it something that you ever had to deal with? 
you know, throughout your life later on? Yeah. So I was, I was always angry and confused and I just, and I always saw myself as a victim, um, period. And, and through, before, before giving my life to the Lord, it was like, okay, I'm a victim. That's just, that was just my identity. I'm a victim and I need to manipulate my way into what I want. And you know, you know what I mean. That's that's how I pretty much see how my teenage years, and my early twenties was. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. So, you go to the job corps, get a job. You're doing drugs. You're in your twenties now. Yeah. What's life like? I never saw my. I never thought I'd be in the place where I'm at right now. Every day was living for that day. I had a group. I had a pretty much just a group of friends that I just stuck around with, and we just pretty much just stayed in Bridgeport on the weekends. We pretty much just made money just to go party in the weekends in New York City. That's pretty much it, and that and that's just what life was until I became a merchant marine and worked on the Port Jefferson ferry. I started making good, decent money there, um, but the problem was my money would just go to getting high. So I just knew that it, in order for me to get high, I needed to. Have a job, and yeah. I needed to have a good job, and and that's pretty much it. It's always that problem with getting high; <laughs> tends to ruin things, and it yes, takes yes. takes a lot of money to fund it. Yes, yes. So, um, I I pretty much had a a, a pretty good job at this point. Um, I was a merchant marine. I'm working for the Port Jefferson Ferry. Uh, it's the ferry that goes back and forth from Bridgeport, Connecticut, to Port Jefferson. However, I was still always broke, and I still had um, the same knuckleheads I was hanging around with. So. Um, I was I wasn't necessarily driving at this time. Every now and again, I'd have a I'd have a car. Um, I couldn't pay insurance, so I'd just be suspended. And I'll continue driving the stupid thing, <laughs> and then you know I'll, I'll, I'll get it impounded, and then I'll have the same knuckleheads pick me up from work, and it's like, hey, what are we gonna do? Let's go get high. So you know I'll just we'll, we'll go get high all weekend, and I'll go to work. I'll go to work of two days no sleep, <laughs> and then just go to work. Sometimes. The money would dry out probably that night when I got out of work, and then we'll go rob someone, wow. you know, just spiraling downwards. Eight years later, I end up losing the job. Every now and again, the Coast Guard will come on and drug test randomly. I thought that I was gonna get, pull, I was gonna get pulled, so I didn't go to work. I just stopped going to work because of this. No one knew what the heck I was talking about. I ended up losing that job. And then I went from there to working at a, um, in a shipyard. I worked at the shipyard for two years. And then in 2008, I had a, a crew of five people, of just friends. Um, they were either in jail or dead. And I'm just hanging around people that I don't need to hang around. It's me and a few friends at the house. This guy moved in down the street, started hanging out. We hung out all night that night. And yeah, man, we got into a disagreement over a small amount of cocaine and just one of those drug-fueled nights of just nonsense. Yeah. We just started tussling. He pulled out a gun. I didn't have a gun on me or anything like that. We started fighting. As I put him on the ground, he shot me. He shot me once in the stomach and once in the leg. I don't know in what sequence. As I was on top of him, I heard the, heard the gunshots. He crawled all away from me, and then I was just I looked down and I'm bleeding. And I was in pain, and uh, he took off. Uh, I went through my house. Uh, a friend of mine was sleeping in the other room. Um, I tried to wake her up. She didn't wake up. Um, and then 
I, I picked up the phone, crawled out through the, the front yard. The neighbor's wives came out. I mean, I was dying. I couldn't really, I couldn't focus. I couldn't stand up. I tried to light a cigarette. I couldn't do that. I woke up in the hospital. I remember when I first woke up, I just saw red. And I just saw red everywhere, not just on my shirt or my clothes, but the room was red. I mean, I was a mess. I had a catheter in me. And I mean, so you're there in the hospital recovering from this. I mean, what, what, where are you at in your head right here? I couldn't believe this happened, and I wanted to hurt him. So you're thinking about revenge. You're coming out of that. Yes. You're there. This yeah. guy shot me. Yeah. It's a friend of yours. No, someone I probably knew for two weeks. No, I see. Yeah. So what what are the days like this? I mean, is this where the Lord starts to encounter you? The Lord has been encountering me the whole this whole time. But in this in this situation, they patched me up and they sent me home. That week I was home, couldn't eat, I couldn't use the bathroom. If I peed, I peed blood. And that's how it was for an entire week until the final day I was throwing up, but nothing was coming out. It was just bile. And um my eyes were just yellow. It felt like I was poisoned. You know, I had to tell my mother, I, I don't feel good. She said, you don't look good. So they sent me to the hospital. You know, they took one look at me. <laughs> and they were like, oh my gosh, you know, this is jaundice. And, you know, all this stuff uh, was going on with me. So, they, so as I'm coherent, they put a catheter inside of me, <laughs> which that was painful because I had to pee. Sounds like a good time. <laughs> <laughs> and they said I would have died. That if I didn't go to the hospital, I would have died oh. right then and there. And I was in the hospital for a month and a half. Um, I had six surgeries in there, and uh, it, I was a mess. I was a complete mess. And Phoebean, Phoebean is this little Nigerian lady. She, she would come in and visit me. She was my mother's friend at the time, but she was like one of those fire-breathing evangelists, evangelicals. And um, she said, oh, the Lord has a plan for you. And I would always hear this stuff, and I'm just like, okay, all right, but... <laughs> You know, because I've been hearing that all my life. When the day came, when they started taking out all the tubes out of my neck and just out of everything, she came that day. And um, she said, she she said, Do you, you know, um, this isn't for you. And she said, she, she presented the gospel in a way I never heard it before. She said, you know, there's a purpose for your life. You know, you, you need to make a choice. You know, if you go down this, just you keep going down this avenue, this is death. Basically, she just presented the gospel to me in a way I never really heard it before. She just talked about a God of love. She started talking about um, just Jesus. I need to make a choice. And she led me to the Lord that day in the hospital. It's not like everything aligned at this point and then now, you know, everything was changed. However, my anger towards the person that shot me changed. I didn't want to watch the TV too much anymore, and my dad started coming around. That, this is real significant because when I was real young, um, we didn't have a good relationship at all. Then he got saved. When he got saved, he got different, but of course, I'm still trapped in my thinking of, oh, this guy's a jerk, he's an idiot, he's giving all his money to the church, you know, <laughs> he's just a bad dad, you know, I really saw the power of Christ in his life when I was in the hospital, I mean, he would come after visiting hours, you're like, you're not even supposed to be in here, but somehow he would get in, he would pray for me, and I knew that those days when, in the hospital, when I was in a lot of pain, I mean, this pain was just unimaginable, I would call him, hey, can you pray for me, he will just end up at the hospital, 
you know, and it was just like, that's awesome. You know, I, I saw him in a different light that was just awesome. Uh, yeah, so when I, when I got out of the hospital, I mean, my goal was, you know, just, just to read the word and get to know Jesus, but I felt like there was a disconnect. I, don't know, I didn't know what I was doing. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, I, I guess I'm supposed to read the Bible. You know, I guess I'm supposed to look at sermons on YouTube or something. I don't know. And um, I would say this was the first time I spent a year clean and I didn't do drugs. I didn't drink and I didn't smoke cigarettes. Wow. Um, one year. This was the first time I was clean since I was 14 years old. And um, what happened after that year? Went right back to started with some cigarettes, started hanging out with this guy or that guy. And um I was just full blown back into cocaine, but I'll say the. Were you in the church that year, or were you just kind nope. of just? I was never. I didn't get into the church until I came down here. Okay. To Georgia. That's incredible. So you so you finished that that year. You end up making some because it's a big deal, obviously, because there's, you know, a lot of people I think that can have an event that scares them, or maybe it's it maybe it's a real genuine conversion like you had. You know, they go for six months or they go for a year, don't take care of the maintenance, you know, or use their spiritual disciplines and get in good community. Then I think inevitable, like you said, I mean, you start hanging around, you know, some guys that are similar to what you used to hang around. And then, you know, there you are back. Yeah, I would say, you know, I tried. I tried. But the problem is this, and I'm not blaming the church or anything like that, but it, it seemed like. People would hear my story. Oh, you come to my church and tell your story. You know, and it was like, and then that was it. You know, and I just felt like, nah, this is. You don't want to you actually to hang out. <laughs> you don't want to hang out. It's a cool story. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, I didn't like that too much. You know, yeah. so it was just like, I knew a change needed to happen. I just didn't know how to do it. Yeah. And wow. Now looking back, it's only God that does it in his process and his time, you know? So one I had I had one prayer. Didn't know how to pray, didn't like pray. Uh, God, please don't give up on me. Wow. Only because I knew and that's all it was. There's no matter what I did, I, I I'll set out to go out that night to get high. And I'll just say that, please God don't give up on me. Cause I remember getting shot and I knew that I could go. You know, but I can't leave the drugs alone. I don't know how to. So eventually you'd make it to Atlanta. And I remember, you know, even, you know, some of the the stories of you getting high and, you know, getting plugged in with a church where they still drank. That was obviously a yeah. toxic environment. Yeah, yeah. And then eventually you would find the International House of Prayer, which for some of y'all that, that don't know, it's a place that's 24 hours a day, seven days a week for really the last 15 years of where, I mean, you can walk in at three o'clock in the morning and there's going to be live worship, a place to go in and hang out in the presence of the Lord. And you would come in high or when you couldn't find any dough. No, no, when I couldn't find it. <laughs> Coming down. Well, so let's just back up real quick. This is, this is real cool part right here. So I'm in Connecticut. It's this, I guess shot in 2008. 2009, I meet this girl, okay? I met this girl in Florida. She happens to live in Georgia. And I just know I need to get out of Connecticut, okay? And 
yeah, this might test some people's theology here and all that stuff. I'm not saying that the Lord put this girl here for me to go chase her and go live in Florida or Georgia. I'm not mm-hmm. saying that. But um, what I am saying is this, is that what the enemy causes for evil, the Lord will turn for good. Amen. And yeah. what happened was I knew I needed to leave. And in my heart, I knew that I had to go. Not that I wanted to leave my son that was here or anything like that. Um, but I knew that I had to get out of this situation because I just kept going, getting back into the same cycle. I did not know how to change, but I knew a change had to happen. So, um, I moved down. I moved, she, I met her in Florida, but she lived in, in Roswell, Georgia. Well, I have a, a good friend that lived an hour away from her, um, that I grew up with in Connecticut. And we started getting together down down here and all that stuff and everything like that. And he started going to the International House of Prayer first. And he kind of, he started, oh, man, I'm not going to keep staying on these streets. So I'm like, what's going on? Where are you going? Because I came down here, we were getting high. <laughs> you know, I was asking him, where can we get some coke? And then that was it, you know? And then, and, and that was it. Because, you know, wherever <laughs> wherever you are, there you are, you know? Right. So... <laughs> So, um, you know, he said, oh, man, I'm, I'm going to go to the house of prayer. You know, it's a big story about how, you know, he, how he found the house of prayer. But I was like, okay, cool. And um, this was in 2011, and it was strange. It was strange in a good way. But I saw people that reminded me of Phoebe and the same lady that led me to the Lord. Wow. I didn't see any other woman. I mean, I, never, I haven't seen any other person that lived an authentic um, lifestyle dedicated to loving the Lord. And I saw it here at the House of Prayer. So, yeah, uh, I started I started coming. I said, it was like, it was like a drought. Like, you couldn't find any Coke anywhere or any weed or anything like that. So, I was just like, oh, let's go to that place. You know, it's, it's open. It's midnight. <laughs> so let's, a let's cocaine go. famine <laughs> hit Atlanta. <laughs> So let's go there. And I started developing a prayer life just by myself. And it was just very simple. Like, Lord, I want to have friends like these. You know, I want to I want to stop doing what I'm doing. I want to be more like them. During this time, the girl that I was that I was living with, we were only together for probably like a year. She ended up getting a job in Taiwan as a teacher. So when she left, my reaction, my my ultimate reaction was to go back to Connecticut, but I stayed. And uh, when I stayed down here, I ended up getting a, um, I, I ended up going to the Aviation Institute of Maintenance over there in Duluth in 2012. And I was struggling at this time with, not necessarily, with wanting or having the desire to do drugs and wanting to live a sold out life for, for Christ, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I was struggling with it hard. I had another surgery coming up. It was open heart surgery where they were going to repair the mitral valve on the left-hand side of my, of my heart. And that was going to be in December, um, December of, uh, 2012. I, my prayer was real simple. And it was just like, Lord, I, I mean, I was tired of surgeries and everything. And I just said, Lord, um, if you could just take, if you could just take me through this, I'll just serve you, and I won't do. I won't. I don't want to do drugs anymore. I just believe that you can truly deliver me from this thing. And um, yeah, the night before, I went out 
and that was the last time I did drugs. That's so good. And from there, you would eventually meet your wife, and we would do outreach ministry. You remember those days? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do remember. We started doing that in 2013. Yeah. Yeah. Who's... Who was the guy that used to practice the robberies and the cylinder of the gun would fall out? Dre. Dre. <laughs> I remember him. Those were great days. Yeah, yeah. Man, it's just amazing just to see how far God's brought you, what he's brought you through. I mean, it's an incredible story, incredible yeah. man, and uh, an inspiration. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, no problem. It's so good, man. Let's do it again soon. Let's do it. Man. All right. Guys, thank you so much for listening to our podcast. It is a privilege and an honor to be able to serve you. If you or someone in your family is struggling with addiction, please give us a call. It's 770-570-7422.